You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now is a really opportune moment. I've never seen in my whole career workers have as much power as they do right now. Employers are really desperate to keep people. There's so many people jumping jobs, record numbers of people quitting. That gives you a lot of leverage right now. This is a moment when you can really succeed if you ask for more. The Her Money Podcast is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows that wealth isn't just about money. It's about everything money enables you to do. So how do you build wealth? Join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. So how are you feeling today? Specifically, how are you feeling about your career? And going even deeper than that, how are you feeling about your power in the workplace? The truth is, not enough women have it. And we have less of it today than we did just a few years ago, by the way. Women lost 30 years of progress during the pandemic in terms of labor force participation. One and a half million women who left their jobs during the pandemic, most of whom cited childcare or family care responsibilities, have not returned. So today, I want to get really real about the fact that our progress has stalled. Things have just gotten harder for many women, which is why we need a plan, because simply telling people to lean in or work harder is just not going to cut it anymore. We need concrete action steps to follow. Whether we are in the workplace and looking to climb the ladder, whether we've been out of the workforce a while and we're hoping to get back in, whether we're one of those people who've started our own thing during the last couple of years and we want to grow it as quickly and profitably as possible, and I knew just who to call to get an action plan for us. Stacey Vanek-Smith is the author of Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. Her book has been heralded as the handbook for any woman who is ready to learn how to wield her power unapologetically and finally break that glass ceiling for good. Stacy's a longtime NPR host, a Princeton grad with a master's degree in journalism from Columbia. Stacy, I am so excited about this. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's a, a topic that is very, very important to me. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the book. Why Machiavelli? Well, yes, that is an excellent question. He's not known as a champion of women's rights. He certainly wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) But Machiavelli actually came second in the process of the book. So what came first was a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about, which was the data. So I'd been a financial reporter for almost 20 years. And when you cover a beat for that long, like certain stories, you end up doing them many, many times. Oh, I know. Yes, yes. You know, so (laughs) pay gap. I had done probably five or six stories over the years about the pay gap, maybe more. And I was doing my latest story about the pay gap. And I was talking to an economist, this amazing researcher, Dr. Francine Blau, and she just threw off this comment. She said, well, you know, these numbers haven't moved in like 20 years. And I was like, 
what? I mean, then this is to be clear, uh, the pay gap is women earn about 80 cents on the dollar compared to men. For black women, it's 63 cents. For Latina women, it's about 55 cents. So these numbers are pretty stark. And the fact, and I, you know, I've covered the economy for almost 20 years. I've seen so much transformation, so much growth, so much movement, more women going to law school than men now, so many women going to medical school and business school. And the fact that the needle had not moved in the pay gap at all for basically 20 years, but definitely for 10, it's just been stuck, really blew my mind. So that was kind of rattling around in my head. And that was what started the book. And then I went to my editor, Karen Marcus at Simon & Schuster, and I was talking this over with her. Also, the CEO gap had been frozen too. CEOs are 80% male, 90% white. Those numbers have gotten worse in recent years, which I can't even, how did they get worse? (laughs) But they have. And there's a disconnect here. I mean, it's not like women aren't getting more degrees, getting all the tools to earn more money. Like there is a disconnect. And my editor said, yeah, you know, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And some light went off in my head and I bought a copy of The Prince and read it cover to cover. It's very short. It's only like 45, 50 pages. And that was when I thought, yes, this is the guide that I thought would be the most helpful to women. It felt like he offered solutions, strangely, very seemingly specifically tailored to the situation that women are in in the workplace right now. It's so interesting that we can reach back so far in history and find things that are appropriate. The challenges that you were talking about, the ones we talk about every day, the pay gap, the CEO gap, are there others that have been brought about by the pandemic? Is there the housework gap, the childcare gap? Are there others that you think are front and center at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think there are new challenges from the pandemic. I mean, there are some new challenges, but I feel like it was more like challenges that had been there kind of surfaced because things became more extreme. Women have been taking on the bulk of the childcare for recorded history. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even in couples where mixed gender couples where both partners work, women still work full time, but women will still do the bulk of the childcare, the bulk of the housework. And this was just sort of brought to a crisis point during the pandemic. And for a lot of people, this just, I think a lot of women were just working almost past capacity for a long time. And then I think the pandemic just sort of forced a crisis. And a lot of people said, wow, I can't do this anymore. But I think it exposed something that had been happening in our economy for a long time, which is women just trying to yes and, like do everything work full time, manage their careers, deal with discrimination, run their households, do the bulk of the child care, you know, just kind of trying to do everything. And I think the pandemic made it so much worse that, like you said, 30 years of progress was lost as far as the share of women in the workforce and more than a million and a half women left and haven't come back. Let's get tactical in terms of the specific challenges and what Machiavelli has to offer us in terms of addressing them in a new way. And let's start with the gender pay gap. As you said, it is stuck. It is not improving. How do we get it moving? Well, now is a really opportune moment, I think, because I've never seen in my whole career workers have as much power as they do right now. 
employers are really desperate to keep people. There's so many people jumping jobs, record numbers of people quitting. That gives you a lot of leverage right now. So I think all things being equal, this is a moment when you can really succeed if you ask for more. Also, one of the huge factors in the pay gap, maybe the biggest, definitely one of the biggest, is workplace flexibility. A lot of the reasons that the pay gap exists are because women will often take part-time work instead of full-time, or work like say four days a week instead of five because they're trying to accommodate childcare and family care and housework and work full time or part time. And right now I think employers, because we've been through this pandemic and so many people sort of jerry-rigged together working from home situations, remote working, I think employers are more open to a flexible plan. So I think for women right now, there is an opportunity to go for positions that maybe would not have seemed possible either to the women or to the employers, frankly, before, and able to integrate childcare and other responsibilities into that because flexibility has really been the thing. Flexibility around specifically childcare has been probably the biggest factor in holding women back from shooting for executive positions, for being seriously considered by companies for executive positions. Uh, and I think this is a moment when a, employers really need us. Mm-hmm. And B, I mean, you, we see wages going up for the first time in decades. We see real wages going up for the first time. So I see, I think now is a really special opportunity. So let's separate the two issues. And, and maybe the answer is similar. But when we look at the teachings of Machiavelli, when we look at what he told people to do in order to get this power, How do we approach that when we're looking for more pay? I mean, I've seen all the research that you've seen over the past 20 years, right? That women don't ask or that we actually do ask, but when we ask, we are turned down. I'm not exactly sure where the truth lies in all of that anymore, quite frankly. But how do we turn the tables in this opportune moment to just start getting paid substantially more? I think it's so key that you said it's hard to know where the truth is because a lot of the information that we get as women is contradictory. You're right that women don't ask as much. About one time for every five times a man asks for a raise, women will ask. So that is issue number one. Issue number two is where things get complicated. So you're like, okay, well, I'll just ask more. But it's not quite that simple because research shows us that when women ask for more, there's not, not only are they less likely to get more, but often there's backlash. Studies have shown that women who ask for more are automatically considered less desirable to work with, no matter how they ask for more. So what I propose, I mean, Machiavelli was all about clarity, looking at a situation clearly, what is the situation? Removing emotion, removing morality, and just looking at things like a chessboard and saying like, okay, what's our situation? How do we move forward? So this is our situation. We're in kind of a bind where if you as a woman ask for more, you could experience backlash, you could be punished. But if you don't ask for more, you're definitely not gonna get more. So the way forward I think is to figure out how to ask that minimizes backlash. And what I recommend and what research has shown is that you want to avoid any kind of an antagonistic approach. You don't want like a high noon situation, like give me this or else, Women don't do well in that situation. Backlash is maximized. But still, like that also seems like a puzzle because it's like, well, isn't that what a negotiation is? But there's another approach you can take, which is to sort of paint a picture of a future together with your employer. 
and do a lot of homework. So you bring facts and a future. <laughs> so the facts are you do a lot of homework. You find out what other people in that position are getting paid, both at the company where you are and other companies. And there are a number of ways that you can do that. But you come with those facts, and that is probably the most important tool in a negotiation. I mean, we know to point people toward Glassdoor and PayScale, but these days, can you just ask a colleague what they're making? I mean, my daughter and her friends, she knows what all our friends are making. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's really important. And I think what you can, it's about framing. So you can just say, listen, I'm getting ready to ask for a raise. I'm nervous. I'm not great at this. I sort of suspect I'm possibly underpaid. Would you mind telling me? And one thing, I, because I've been reporting on money for a long time, and I've had to ask people uncomfortable questions about money. One word is range. Range is like a magical word when asking people about salary. So just like, would you mind telling me what the salary range is for your position? And that kind of relaxes people. So you're not like, how much do you make? But ask people who used to have the job. Ask people who used to manage people who had the job. Ask people who have the job at other companies. And people often want to help. A friend of mine has started reaching out to specifically white men on LinkedIn who have her job at other companies and just been like, hey, I'm trying to close the pay gap. And she said she's at an 80% response rate. Not only that, the men she's contacted will contact their colleagues and get information from them. So I think people want to help. I think people realize this is a problem and want to help. So I think you can reach out and that information is gold in a negotiation because then you can say, listen, I've done a lot of market research. I know that the range for my position is about 70 to $90,000. My productivity is up 20% over last year. I'm one of the most productive members of our team. So I think it's fair for me to get paid towards the top end of that range. What do you think? That is a very different conversation than I really feel like I'm underpaid. I know that Jeremy, who sits next to me and has fewer years of experience, is making more money, and that feels unfair. Like It's a very different conversation. Just you bring the facts. You bring the range. You say market research. Yeah, absolutely. Although if Jeremy, who's sitting right next to me and has less experience, is making more money than me, I am going to be really pissed. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be angry rightfully so. And why shouldn't I just say, hey, it has come to my attention that Jeremy, who's been in this job three years less than me, is making 20000 more than me, and I expect you to level up. Yes, I have done this. I went into a boss's office in almost that exact situation and just cried and was so angry. And, you know, I just didn't think things through. I think what I would say is you want to use the energy from the anger to maximize that moment. You have leverage. You found out Jeremy's making $20,000 more than you. That is a moment of leverage. You know that that money is on the table for the position you're in. And the emotion is absolutely justifiable. It is correct. But I think you can miss opportunities because emotions will sometimes throw us off. You throw you off balance. It's hard to think clearly. It's hard to be tactical. So think about like what your long-term goals are in the situation. If this is a job you don't care about, go in there and throw some torches, you know, like be angry. But if this is also an opportunity to think about what you want, like what do you want to ask for in that moment? That is what I wish I could tell my past self. It's like, yes, be pissed, go out with friends, get a drink, then figure out what you want. Like, do you want to raise and a promotion? Where do you want to go at this company? And then you can sit down and have a more balanced conversation where you have a lot more power, I would argue. It's very easy, this is very annoying, but for women to get written off for being emotional. So if you go in and say, listen, 
I understand that, you know, I know how much my colleagues are making. I know, for instance, like Jeremy's paid quite a bit more than me. Looking at our experience, it seems like that should be corrected. But really, I'm excited about moving forward at this company. I see myself on this team. I think it's so wonderful what you guys are doing. So I'd like to talk about possibly moving in this direction, getting this title, getting this raise. So you're thinking tactically about how to use this moment, this bit of leverage you have. I mean, I totally wasted my leverage. I did get a raise, but there was this moment that has haunted me since then, which is my boss said, well, what do you want? And I didn't have an answer because I hadn't thought it through because I was just upset. So I sort of blustered and I was like, well, I don't know. And I wish at that moment, I mean, that was an opportunity. That was an opening. He was like, okay, you're unhappy. You've sort of caught us paying you less than we should. What do you want? to get. And I just, I hadn't put that thought in. I'd been so caught up in the emotion of it that I hadn't been as strategic as I could have been. It occurs to me, you know, we often talk about when you're in the throes of shopping and just grabbed by some impulse that you are going to buy those shoes or buy those cocktail glasses that you've been eyeing or that you haven't been eyeing, that you should take a 24-hour pause and maybe there is an employment pause or a negotiation pause that we can sort of add to our arsenal with our purchasing pause. So let's turn to the flexibility side of the equation. Is there, as things have changed during the pandemic, as employers look to head back to the office, are there different rules of the road when it comes to getting what we want there? With flexibility, I think so, for sure. And that's traditionally just been one of the biggest issues for women in both trying to have like top jobs at at companies. A lot of those are very rigid in terms of like law partners and things like that, in terms of unyielding schedules. But also I would say even women choosing careers will often choose a career with an eye to flexibility in order to accommodate childcare, even if they don't have children at that moment. And I think I'm very excited for this moment, mostly because of that reason. I mean, yes, workers have a lot of power and this is a great time to ask for a raise, but I'm really hoping that these new accommodations that a lot of workplaces have had to make because of the pandemic will end up creating a huge opportunity for women where it's like, oh, actually, as an executive, you can work from home one day a week. It's not that big of a deal. And those little accommodations, I think, will make a huge difference for women. I don't think women need all that much flexibility. I don't think it's that women are like, oh, I don't want to do as much work as a male counterpart. I think it's that they need a little bit of schedule flexibility in many, many, many cases. And a lot of times having kids will come at a crucial moment in a woman's career. And like little, little kids need a lot of care. <laughs> like, they, you know, a newborn can't really like entertain itself. And so I think often a lot of women have children in their 30s, and that can be a really crucial moment in a career when people are making decisions about which path to take and how to move forward. And so I'm really excited that now maybe women in this position who have young kids or who are about to have kids or who are thinking of having kids in the future can actually work with an employer and create a situation that is flexible for them, that will just make the small accommodations that they personally need. And it just won't be seen as that big of a deal because the stigma of remote work, the stigma of working from home, I think has largely gone away because of the pandemic. 
Is there specific language to use when you have that conversation so that you don't get shunted into a less powerful track? I mean, this hits home for me, right? I was at Smart Money Magazine when I had my first child and my second child, actually. And I had always thought I was going to run a magazine someday. And then I had a child and I said, I'm not going to be an editor, right? I'm going to be a writer because writers can work at home. Editors have to be in the office. I worked from home two days a week my whole career. And I was very fortunate to work for somebody who said out loud, a guy, I am going to be the best employer for working mothers because that way I'm going to get all the great working mothers. And so, you know, I was lucky that he saw that, but not everybody sees it. And I don't think everybody will see it coming out of the pandemic. I think there's some people who are just like, I need my people back in the office. I need to see them. Well, yeah. I mean, I think so many women have been in your position and I have to say our economy has lost out. I mean, this isn't just an issue for women. It's an issue for everyone because- the resources of a working mother being lost or leveled down or like, it's just so heartbreaking in a way that, but you made a calculation for your own life that was logical and necessary at the time. And you're right. I mean, I think the research that surprised me the most when I was researching the book was the research on discrimination against mothers. It's huge. I mean, the pay gap between women with children and women without children is larger than the gender pay gap. That is astonishing, and I want to dig into that, Stacey. But before I do, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. I hope you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a brand new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in to explore how your financial decisions can shape your life and why wealth is about more than just money. Experienced wealth planners and financial professionals will join us to talk about tax-efficient investing, planning for the next generation, retirement, and so much more. It's your money, so make the most of it. New episodes premiere each weekend and will be available on major podcast platforms. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more and subscribe. I'm talking with Stacey Vanek-Smith, author of Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. All right, the motherhood penalty, worse than the gender gap, right? Can you dig in for me? Yes. I mean, this was, like I said, I think just the most shocking part of the research I did. And there were a lot of sort of distressing and shocking things that came up. But most women at some point in their lives will be parents. And when they become parents, there is just a raft of discrimination that women experience once they have a child. And what's so tricky about it is that it often comes as a guise of helping the woman. It's like, oh, let's not put, you know, Kathy on that really complicated case. She just had a baby. Let's give her a break and put her on this. I mean, it happens under the guise of what is known as benevolent paternalism. But it happens a lot where people basically, as a woman, what can happen is your employer stops seeing you as like a serious employee and starts seeing you as someone who is a mom and also kind of working on the side. 
there's just a lot of unconscious biases that come in. And this is especially serious for, uh, there are a lot of single parents in the workplace. I think an enormous number of them are women. So a lot of single women are in a situation where people are basically assuming they don't need the money anymore, that they're not totally committed to their careers anymore, and that their real job is raising children. And so women just get marginalized unconsciously. And as a result, a lot of women who have the resources leave the workforce. So tactically, how do we recognize that this is happening to us? Because I do think if this is happening under the guise of benevolent paternalism as a new mother who is struggling with all of these new responsibilities, we might just say, oh my God, thank you, right? Sometimes we might say, thank you, not recognizing what is being done to us. So how do we understand what's going on and get in the way of it? The advice that I gave in this chapter, the research that I looked at was probably some of the most troubling for me in the book. I didn't like giving it. Also, I don't have children, so it felt especially monstrous to me. So I wanted to give that caveat, but I was committed to giving advice that was research-backed and that I thought would work. Well, one of the pieces of advice is before you have your child to have a meeting with your employer and essentially treat it as if you're about to go on a vacation. So be like, great, okay, so I'll be out and when I get back in July, I wanna be on this case and this case and this case. And what you wanna do is sort of establish that you are continuing with your career, that this isn't like, okay, we're gonna have this momentous thing and then we'll reset. It's like, okay, great. So. When I'm back in April, I'll be working on the Johnson case. I'm really excited. And to be explicit with your employer, say, listen, I'm even if you don't know if this is the case, I would encourage you to say, listen, you know, obviously I'm very excited about having this baby, but also I'm very committed to my job. I'm on a partner track. I'm very serious about that track. I want to be kept on projects that will keep me there. When I'm back in April, I want to be put on X, Y, and Z. Just to sort of preempt that. I think that's a powerful thing to do. And then when you get back, and this is where the advice just starts to make me feel terrible, but I will give it because it is what the research shows, is to not talk about the baby that much in front of colleagues. Obviously, friends or colleagues you're close with are one thing, but it is just too easy to get slotted, I think into a marginalized position because people are like, oh, she has this new baby oh, she's a mom now. I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to even get the words out giving that advice because it seems so counter to what should be the case, but it is the case. When women bring up their children, it just triggers a raft of discrimination. One woman I talked with for the book, Dr. Isabel Escobar is an engineer and she adopted her daughter and she had a colleague, a female colleague say to her, you're gonna get a lot of men telling you that you should step back and you have to emphasize. So what she did was, and Dr. Escobar, Isabel, said that she was always sort of the department workhorse. She was always staying late and taking on extra projects. And all of a sudden, she had male colleagues saying, you know, you should be a mother first. This is a really important thing. And so what she said, and I really like this, because you want to address it, but it's probably coming from a place the person doesn't realize quite how audacious they are being. 
So she would say, you know, listen, I really, you know, appreciate your concern, but you know, this is my family. So please let me figure out, you know, with my family, the decisions that are the best for my family. And she said, she said my family, like five or six times on the advice of her friend. And she said that eventually worked. Is sort of emphasizing like this is my decision my family you're taking ownership it's like you you're not going to slot me into x y or z position but it's tricky and if she had been a man i am almost certain no one would have said anything of that sort to her is it advisable if you have a partner to raise the degree of work and commitment that the partner is taking on. I have a friend, a young couple, actually, they just had their first child. They both work for companies where she gets three months of parental leave, then he gets three months of parental leave, right? And they're staggering it so that it works best for their family. If you have a partner who is in it like you are, is it advisable to point that out? Oh yeah, I think this is is so important. Dr. Claudia Golden is an economist at Harvard. She has a great book out called Career and Family. And she looks at what happens with couples, most of whom will go into parenthood wanting some kind of an equal split. I mean, men want to spend time with children too, and women want to have serious careers. And she said what often happens is they will make a decision that's sort of economically efficient for the family because if one of the partners takes a more demanding position that has less flexibility, they're going to probably make more money. And the other partner takes a position that is maybe more flexible so that they can prioritize childcare. Often that ends up dividing along gender lines. And so that's where a lot of the issues come in, even among couples who have every intention of having an equal partnership as far as work and family. And she said, you know, the alternative is that both partners take a position that offers more flexibility, which probably means that as a family unit, they're going to make less money. But I think the important thing from that is to have those conversations early and to figure it out realistically how to divide up childcare and work and what accommodations are going to be made. I think that's probably really crucial. And also to have those conversations as early as you can, because of course, once the child comes and everyone's very busy, I think it's very easy to just fall into patterns that have been, you know, just sort of fall into the norms, which will have women probably doing the bulk of the housework and the childcare, because that's just, it's sort of the default. And I think you have to just be a little more intentional with a partner if you want to avoid that. I would imagine some of these Machiavellian lessons actually come into your negotiation with your partner about the work that gets done around the house and the work that gets done with the children as much as it does with your employer. Yeah. And I think that can be helpful too. I mean, these issues are very emotional. I mean, I get very emotional about them, but there are just some practical considerations. And I think it can be helpful to just divide things up in a practical way. So as we wrap this up, what are your favorite pieces of advice from Machiavelli? What are the top three or four things that you think all women should know, should practice, should tell their friends about? I think sort of the overarching piece of advice, his most important piece of advice, is just to look at the situation clearly. Just remove emotion from it and just see what the situation is you're in. Don't be scared to look at it. It can be really hard when you're dealing with issues of exclusion and discrimination. But I think that's so important because it helps you figure out how to move forward. It is actually empowering. 
The second piece of advice that Machiavelli gives that I really love is to act. When in doubt, act. Machiavelli thought waffling was a really dangerous thing for a prince. He saw a lot of princes and, and leaders and generals lose battles or lose kingdoms because they were trying to figure out how to make a decision. But I think there's real value there in like, listen, you're going to make some mistakes maybe, but when in doubt, act. I feel like this happens a lot with raises. It's like, oh, I don't want to ask for a raise now. This is a bad time. It's the end of the year. I'll wait until January or maybe I'll wait until February because I'm turning in a big project in January. And I think Machiavelli's lesson is to act instead, to sort of get things rolling, get things moving. And it, I think it helps prevent getting stuck, which is a lot of the effect of discrimination in the workplace is, is people get stuck. One of the few pieces of advice that Machiavelli gave that I felt like actually was like what a good person would do. I mean, mostly Machiavelli was like very strategic, very logical, but he did have one piece of advice. Of course, it came from a strategic, logical place, but I loved it. He said, a good prince will always fight for those less powerful than he is. And from Machiavelli's point of view, he's like, not only will this establish you as a leader, but it will win the loyalty of the people you are fighting on behalf of. I sort of feel like it's it's a great thing to do for other reasons, like promoting young people, standing up for people who are maybe being spoken over, who are marginalized for some reason. Uh, I think it can make the whole workplace better. I think it can really move change in a larger way and you can be a part of that, which is exciting. So it's one of the moments where sort of the clear-eyed, practical, you know, emotionless advice of Machiavelli kind of coincided with what I felt really good about, like actions I felt really good about in the workplace. So that was my third piece of Machiavellian advice. I am sending this book to all my friends. I have loved this conversation. I think it's exactly what we need to hear right now. Stacy. thank you so much for doing this with us. I hope you'll come back. Yes, I'll come back anytime. I think it, these conversations are so important. I think what you do is so important, like financial literacy for women, career literacy. These are all so empowering. And I think on an individual level and on a larger level, and I'm thrilled to come back anytime. This was such a pleasure. For us too. Thank you so much. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit www.bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. I'm feeling very powerful. After this last conversation, I'm going to go put on some high heels and stomp my path to my future. I love that so much. And everything she said was so relatable, especially her going into her boss's office and not knowing exactly what to ask for. I have absolutely been there. And having a plan, man, having a plan is so, so important when it comes to things like this. Yeah. I mean, I am such that person, right? Something happens. I want to jump on it immediately. I want to make the phone call. I want to bust down the door. And I really have to hold myself back and make sure that I am processing it because that's the only way to think about the things that are really most important to you, right? You may not want what that other person has. You may want something specifically tailored to you. And right now you can actually get it. 
Yeah, I'm hearing so many victory stories from people right now in the working world. And we actually have a letter from one of our listeners today who had some success in a negotiation. Oh, let's hear. This is from Debbie. She writes, Jean, first, I have to say my husband and I have been married for 31 years. And when you were on the Today Show, we both loved you. We would say, if Jean knew us, we would be good friends. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) I'm sure we would be good friends. Yes, I say that so you know that we've loved your advice for decades. To my delight, I discovered your podcast and I've been listening every week since. You are amazing and so helpful to those of us who aren't professionals in the money industry. So I need to say thank you as I recently interviewed for a new job and they actually contacted me and to my surprise asked me to interview. I had just listened to your podcast on how we need to leverage our skills and not the title of the job. This was episode 274, How to Get Hired Now. The new job title I was going for was Director of Mission Advancement, and while I've never had that title before, I did have 75% of the skills they were looking for. I went all in. As I remembered, your guest shared how men usually don't have all the skills, but they feel like they can do the job, while women feel like they need to have all the skills. Long story short, I hit a home run in the interview thanks to the info from your podcast, but wait, it gets better. They emailed me an offer, and I heard your voice in my head saying, men almost always counter offer, but women rarely do. Their offer was good, but I thought I might be leaving money on the table. So I mustered all the courage I could and asked if there was any wiggle room in their offer for higher pay, more vacation, and if they could start the company 401k match sooner as you have to wait a year for the match. I truly thought I might vomit as I hit send on that email, (laughs) (laughs) but I thought I'm doing this for all women and I hit send. So drum roll, they offered me $5,500 more per year, another week of paid vacation, and in my first year, they will pay me 5% more in salary since they aren't able to match my 401k until year two. So thank you for all the information and knowledge to all the female listeners out there. We are worth it. And just send that counteroffer because the worst they can do is say no, but you might get more than you are hoping for. Jean, truly, thank you. Oh my God. Thank you so much for sharing. You just totally made my day, Debbie. I want to blow this up and put it on a poster and just put it front and center on the Her Money homepage. And we may just do that, by the way, Catherine. So just hold on to this one. Debbie, that's amazing. Congratulations. And if we ever run across each other on the street, please come up to me and tell me you are Debbie so that we can become good friends. I had the same thought, Jean. I wanted to immediately put this on the website and shout it from the rooftops. It's incredible. It's fantastic. Amazing. Great. Thank you, Debbie. Our first question comes to us from Chelsea. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I'm so grateful to you both for the wonderful show that you put out each week. I've learned so much, and I have to say, mailbag is my favorite part. I'm always listening for takeaways that will apply to my life. I haven't heard this question asked, so I wanted to put it out there. I'm 40 years old, I live in New York City, and I have about $120,000 saved for retirement in an IRA. This IRA is a combination of all the funds that I had in 401ks from various jobs throughout my 20s and 30s that I rolled into one single account. Then, I have another $80,000 saved in a 401k at my current employer, where I've been for six years. I'm currently maxing out that account at $19,500 a year, 
Essentially, I'm doing all I can with my 401k, and to be honest, I don't have a penny more to spare every month. The fact that I'm saving nearly $20,000 a year kind of blows my mind. I never thought I would get here. But the truth is, I'm still behind with where I want to be with my savings. I know the Fidelity Benchmark says that you should have three times your salary saved by 40, and my salary is $120,000. So this means by now I should have $360,000 saved. That's a big difference from the $200,000 total I have. Even maxing out my 401k, I'll still be behind for the age 50 benchmark too, which suggests having $600,000 saved. I did the math, and if I keep saving my $19,500 every year for the next 10 years until I'm 50, I'll have a total of $395,000 saved, putting me more than $200,000 shy of the recommended $600,000. I have to say it's really hard not to get discouraged here. I earn over six figures. I don't live extravagantly. I maximize my retirement contributions like a good Her Money listener. And honestly, I feel like I'm more responsible with my finances than most of my friends my age. But I'm still falling short. What is a person like me supposed to do here? I know that these benchmarks are just guidelines, but they're there for a reason. And I'm a person who likes to exceed recommended benchmarks, not fall short of them. Is it time I seriously considered taking on a side gig? I have the bandwidth for some freelance work, and I suspect I would be well paid for it in my industry. Because unless I'm missing something, if I want to save more, I need to start making more. Please let me know if there are any big life truths or finance hacks I'm missing here. I have resolved to go into my 40s saving more and feeling good about my future. And right now, I feel like I'm on shaky ground. Thank you so much. Oh, Chelsea, I feel like I have let you down by using the word save. First of all, you're fine. You're fine. And I'm going to show you using the numbers why you're fine. But when we talk about the money that you put into your 401k, yes, we're talking about saving, but then that money is invested. And when it's invested it grows for you. And so even though you are a little bit behind in terms of where those benchmarks are now, you are going to be well ahead of them in not very long at all. And if as you get raises through your lifetime, you keep your contribution percentage where it is, you are going to be so far ahead of it, it's going to just be like you left it in the dust. So here's the math that I think that you're missing. The first part is, so I went to a retirement calculator. I went to the retirement calculator at bankrate.com. It's just their simple savings calculator. And I'm telling you this so that you can just replicate it. I found it at Bankrate under their calculators and it's their simple savings calculator, right? So this is just going to get us to an answer about how much we're going to have in those retirement accounts. We're not going to worry about taxes because these are accounts where the money grows tax-free or at least tax-deferred. We're not going to worry about inflation. We're just going to look at the calculator itself, all right? So you've got an initial deposit, an initial sum of $200,000. That's how much 
combined between your two accounts you've put away already. Because you're putting away $19,500 a year, that's a monthly contribution of $1,625. I assumed you're gonna work for another 20 years. You may actually work for another 25 years, but let's just leave it at 20 right now. If you earn a 6% return on that money, then by the time you hit age 60, you're going to have $1,378,000. If you earn 7%, you're going to have $1,599,000. And if you earn 8%, you're going to have $1,800,000. And by the way, the markets have earned more than this historically. So the answer to your question is just to make sure that the money's not sitting in cash. The money needs to be invested. If you're looking for an easy way to do it, you can look at a target date retirement fund that lines up with your age and your risk tolerance. You can look at a balanced fund, which will be a mix of about 60% stocks and 40% bonds. You can look at a combination of index funds that get you into the stock and bond market in tandem with your age and your risk tolerance, but you're fine. You are, you are fine. If you want to pick up a side gig for fun, pick up a side gig for fun. If you want to pick it up to learn new skills, do not feel like you have to pick it up for this reason. You are not on shaky ground at all. This makes me so happy, Jean. I think I honestly forgot about market growth. I think I was thinking that these benchmarks are what you have to save, not what you have to hit with the power of compound interest on your side. Yeah, no, the benchmarks are this is the amount you should have in your account by the time you retire. By the time you retire, you want to have 10 times your annual salary, your annual current salary, by the way, which I hope will be higher down the road, but these numbers will provide for that, as will the fact that once you hit age 50, you can contribute another $6,000 a year to your 401k, right? There are a lot of things working here. And so you're going to be fine. Thank you so much, Sheen, for the great advice. You're welcome. And in today's Thrive, how to make fast and cheap furniture purchases, even with supply chain problems. At hermoney.com this week, we've got a rundown on where to turn when your typical furniture brands let you down. First, antiques. One tried and true option is to explore antique, vintage, even thrift shops in your area. Making a day of it can be a great way to spend time with friends, unearthing quirky treasures, including sturdily built furniture that has already stood the test of time. So grab your friends, make a brunch date, and shop till you drop. It's not uncommon to discover beautiful dining sets for a couple hundred bucks or a solid pine bookcase for $50. And yes, it might need a coat of paint or two, but it's yours immediately. And every space needs something with a little history. Next, check Facebook, Craigslist, and eBay. If you're in search of something specific, say a white bookcase or a pottery barn bed frame, sites like these make it easy to narrow down the results 
quickly. You can also limit your search radius by location. Driving to pick up your own furniture can help save big on shipping costs. And for pieces that have been online for weeks or longer, just make an offer under the asking price. Folks are often ready to bargain because they're moving or they have some other change going on in their household. Lastly, you may think about contacting the manufacturer directly. If you see a piece of furniture that you like in a showroom or online, go right to the company that makes it rather than the retailer. This can often trim down your weight and you cut out your cost by cutting out the middleman. While some companies don't offer this option, it never hurts to ask. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Stacey Vanek-Smith for teaching us all how to win the workplace. I am feeling like my ambition has definitely grown over the last hour. I hope you feel the very same way. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.